Good evening and Happy New Year. You are listening to the Year Now podcast. My name is Craig. Uh, joining me this evening, I have our regular contributor, Mark. Hey. And also another reasonably regular contributor for the third time, Alexander Maxwell. Hello. And we have a special guest tonight, uh, Peter Harrison. Hi. How's things? Good. And so Peter Harrison uh, is a IT professional, software developer, um, and we've got him on and he's going to talk to us a bit about AI. So that's going to be fun. Uh, and Alexander, uh, we've had you on before. You're here, as I said, you're here for the third time. But uh, just to formally introduce you, you are an associate professor of history. You describe yourself as an historian. Um, and you recently gave a very interesting talk at the Skeptics Conference about Islam. Islam. From what I and, a really nice intro to Islam, a great talk that I think helps demystify some of the uh, the concerns and worries that skeptics might have about how Islam is might be so much worse than other religions. Yes, well, Islam is pretty interesting. I had to read up on Islam uh, to teach a course on the history of the Middle East. And um, it was very difficult to get the information I wanted uh, about Islam because the books written about Islam in English tend to be written either by Muslims who want to convert you to Islam or by Christians who want to warn you about the terrible threat Islam poses to your children. And um, I kind of wasn't in either of those two categories. So it was difficult to find the information I wanted. So I've been giving skeptical talks on Islam for a while now, just because, uh, you know, it was so hard for me to get this information. I thought I would help others. Yeah, it was certainly interesting. I think it was very well received by people who are attending the conference. Well, thank you. So it's the new year and I have been uh, lounging around the house a little bit and um, I've managed to watch some TV and I don't normally watch free to ear TV, but during the Christmas and New Year break, there's often not much to watch on TV and you, you tend to be sort of sitting there. And so I happened to watch some free-to-air ads. Oh, which, uh, oh, that's got to be horrible. <laughs> yes. And so one thing you notice at this time of the year is how many weight loss ads come on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> After the Christmas splurge, it's guilting everybody into buying weight loss products. I love it. <laughs> Apparently so. So I uh, noted about three different brands that I've seen um, advertising, but I was actually quite shocked by one of the ads that I saw. Um, so I've seen I've seen ads for for Weight Watchers, uh, for for Jenny Craig, and for OptiSlim. Now I have to be careful with OptiSlim because there's there's various products with the Opti uh, prefix. There's another one called OptiFast, which does not seem to have any actual um, relationship to OptiSlim. But OptiSlim is an Australian company, um, and they were the worst ad, in my opinion. So they had an ad on that started talking about how obesity is connected with uh, a lower immune system. And I thought, oh, this is pretty awful that they're, they're jumping onto this bandwagon of uh, using the pandemic to promote a product and pr preying on people's fears around their immune system being being less an optimum and, and how they might then uh, suffer from 
worst effects of COVID, I guess. So I, I jumped online and I did a search on this and I discovered that the somebody in Australia um, had back in 2020, when of course the pandemic was new, the first year of the pandemic, had actually put in a complaint to their essentially what is our equivalent of our Advertising Standards Authority. They have a thing over there called the AANA, which is the Australian Association of National Advertisers. So essentially, they're a they're a body that does the same sort of thing as our Advertising Standards Authority. So people can complain to them about ads that they see, and um, then they will review them and make some determination as to whether or not the 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 advertiser was in breach of their code of practice and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I, I I saw the. The case report that the AANA wrote up about this, and it was it was actually quite interesting. Unfortunately, the the complaint was not upheld, but it was quite interesting to see some of the um, arguments that Opti Farm, who are the manufacturers of Opti Slim, actually made, um, and they they did back up the claims on their ad quite well uh, with actual studies and so on. So I thought they did a good job of that. Uh, but to me, just the impression I got of it of actually watching the ad was that it kind of felt a bit exploitative that Pete, you're preying on people's fears about the pandemic and, and then using that to sell a weight loss product. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? But you sent me the link about an hour ago and I've had a quick read of the um, complaint and the, I think, three responses from the advertiser. I think complaints Mm. kept coming in, so they kept writing more responses. But it seems like people were annoyed for a variety of reasons. The COVID scaremongering was one. Another one was the idea that being obese or being fat can compromise your immune system. And certainly from everything that seems to have been included in that complaint, the jury still out. The science is not settled on obesity and immune systems. And I don't think the argument they had that, well, more people were seriously ill or died from COVID if they were obese necessarily means that's an immune system problem. There can be other health problems with that. But the third one I thought was quite interesting was the fact that um, some people argued that it was targeted towards women. And I think this is the case in general that, you know, women are targeted for all the worry how you look things a lot more than men. And apparently, the the main feature in the advert was women sometimes with families but it was the woman that was being targeted for the product yep i agree and in fact in fact all of the ads that i have watched um all feature women so they're definitely targeting those um and i guess, I guess the the other the other one that really annoyed me was the jenny craig one um and they basically came across as saying you will be healthier you will be happier if you are slimmer Oh, healthier, yes. Happy is a big claim. Well, well, even healthier is debatable. Uh, Um, Yeah. I mean, Santa Claus, right, is a jolly fat man. Um, There you go. There's my anecdote that disproves their claim. (laughs) Nothing like um, alluding to fictional figures to make a claim, yes? (laughs) <laughs> hey, I just know that I'm on I'm on thin ice here, right? I mean, I, I without meaning to call out any of you on the call, I'm not the only larger man in <laughs> this podcast episode. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like my health is not probably where it should be. Indeed. Anyway, so I just kind of <laughs> felt it was um, a little bit exploitative and preying on people's fears and preying on just this time of the year that People have put on a bit of weight over Christmas. I know that I have. And um, 
Uh, and and so this is the time of the year where people join gyms, people buy bikes, apparently, um, people do detoxes, all that oh. sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, thinking about it now, I, I think for all the diet ads that I've ever seen, I've never felt like one has been targeted at me. I've, I've never felt like, oh, oh, I need to. And I'm guessing without having noticed it, it probably is that most of them will feature women in the adverts. Yeah, I think so. How often so, do you look uh, at an ad and think this ad is targeting me? Uh, well, I mean, in modern day with the Internet, a lot of adverts are targeted because they are right. A lot of them are very personally targeting me because Facebook and Google and others have made a very impressive profile about who I am and the websites I've just been looking at for the last two hours. So I, I, we're in the age where most adverts are relevant. I'm going to be very badly punished by uh, all these websites I visit now because they're all going to have weight loss products on them. <laughs> the next two months, it's all weight yeah. loss. <laughs> well, I'm just sitting here feeling smug that I don't uh, have signed into a Google profile and log out of Facebook the minute I'm done checking it. And I don't get these sort of personal ads, I think, for this reason, at least to the same volume. You do. Untouchable I'm, I'm, by advertisers. You certainly try, but it's a lot of effort on your part. Um and I have and, to admit, occasionally and, I do see an advert that's useful. I never click on them. It's like you are not knowing that I ever clicked on this ad. I will go to the website independently, which probably they still track. But I feel a little bit better that I don't click on the ads. Okay. Peter, you, as an IT professional, how paranoid are you about being tracked online by these adverts? Not at all. Um, yeah, I, I think I know it happens and... I don't think there's much you can do about it. I mean, going going directly to the website's not going to help because they're going to have cookies and everything anyway. So it's yeah, uh, unless yeah. you go to a great deal of effort, it's 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 not really uh, yeah. This it, is just I, I think, the modern environment that we live in, unfortunately. I think the real answer to it, and, and probably not a great answer, is regulatory. I mean, you know, basically making sure the companies that do collect the data are regulated in such a way that they don't abuse that power um, at the moment obviously they're not regulated enough and exactly what that regulation needs to look like is still an open book but yeah I, I think think um, it, it sorry it, it, it sort of intersects with the the, the topic we're going to be talking about with AI really um, and how AI is affecting what we're doing so they're real yeah I mean it seems like all through IT in the early days the what are now big companies argue that regulation would stop them from being able to grow and especially in the US they were then given a lot of leeway and now obviously we're dealing with the after effect of that that maybe in the early days I helped them as companies but now it seems to be to our detriment that they've been given so much rope I'm less interested. Uh, sorry, I'm less concerned about the advertising. I'm more concerned about the the implications of free speech and tracking, you know, um, in terms of privacy. But that's a separate issue than than the advertising. <laughs> yep. Let's not get on to free speech. We can get you back on if you want to write us an article about free speech at some point. But uh, that's that's a future podcast episode. Yeah. Uh, Alexander, you wrote an interesting article in the newsletter this week talking about the true science versus true religion. Can you enlighten us as to which is the right perspective? Well, I was thinking that, um, you know, secular folks such as ourselves are often quite annoyed when we're talking to a religious person and the religious person disavows any responsibility for some atrocity or ill deed 
by claiming that the perpetrator isn't really a member of their religion. You know, the ISIS isn't, those people aren't real Muslims. Islam is a religion of peace. Pedophile priests, if they were real Christians, they would never have done that. So therefore, there's no responsibility taken. Pedophile priests, not an issue with Catholicism. Catholicism is wonderful. Um, you know, uh, suicide bomber is not an issue with Islam. Islam is a religion of peace. Oh, oh, very, very topical at the moment, right? Given yes. that Cardinal George Pell has just died in the last few hours. This well, is uh, an Australian cardinal who was uh, was he number three in the Catholic Church? Who um, it seems like hid a lot of a lot of child sex abuse within the church, but also has been accused personally. Uh, but the, uh, the Catholic Church is one that doesn't always disavow. Right. He I think he was still a member of the church right up until his death. Well, so I was thinking about how annoying I find this tendency, um, but I got a little introspective because I noticed that I have a similar defensiveness when people are start talking about the science of reincarnation or you know, the science of uh, racial superiority. And there's, um, you know, lots of people who have said all kinds of crazy stuff and justified it in the name of science. And then I find myself springing into action to say, well, that's not real science. Real science is astrophysics. Real science is quantum mechanics. And so I was struck by the rhetorical similarity between that's not the real Islam or that's not the real Catholicism and me saying that's not the real science. So the the point of my piece is to say that, uh, um, you know, we skeptical folk, maybe we need to make a choice between either taking some responsibility for, you know, professors of biology who espouse all sorts of hateful or terrible things about, um, you know, racial hierarchy or psychiatrists saying all kinds of crazy, insane stuff in the names of psychological science um, and say, okay, well, you know, these people weren't disavowed by the scientific establishment of the day. That's on science. Or alternatively, maybe we need to be a little more tolerant when, um, when a Muslim says suicide bombing has nothing to do with the religion I believe in. It's nothing to do with mainstream Islam. Maybe they do have a point there. Mm. So I don't know where I stand on this issue or, you know, there's some sort of middle ground or, but I was I was struck by the rhetorical similarity between that's not the real science and well, that's not the real Islam or that's not the real Christianity. It seemed sort of a, a similar rhetorical device. Mm. And so that's so, what I explored in the article. Yeah. I guess a similar argument that I've sort of heard used in the past uh, when people criticize religion um, uh, then um, the religious people come back and say, well, uh, for example, um, atheism was worse. Look at all the uh, murders that were done in the name of atheism um, by by Pol Pot or uh, or Chinese communists and, and so on. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I guess that's a similar kind of argument. Um, and it's sort of well, I mean, I put it to you that Stalin and Mao Zedong were acting in the name of communism. Yeah. Mm. Mm, yeah, they're not that yeah. they were atheists, but they weren't acting in the name of atheism. This wasn't their atheism driving them to do it. Yeah. Are we just falling into this trap of defending our side again? <laughs> well, no. Well, this is this is sort of what I wonder, you know, uh, you know, all these things that annoy us when Christians or Muslims or whatever do it. Are we doing the same thing? Mm. So it was a, a call for introspection. And, so and many of us do like to 
point out when we see Christians or any religious folk being hypocritical, as, as in we're saying, well, look, look at look at what they're doing. This is completely hypocritical, and therefore this is a criticism of faith. When in fact we probably should just be criticizing the actions of the individual. Well, it's it's a subtle and difficult question to know how much the faith as a whole or how much an organization as a whole is to blame for the actions of an individual. You know, the cardinal that um, you know that Mark mentioned isn't the whole of Catholicism, but on the other hand, he's not just an isolated individual either. He's embedded no. in a system of power. So those questions are not easy. And I think mm. they're not easy for, you know, the history of European racial thinking either. Because there's lots of people who went around talking about Aryan superiority or whatever, who held positions at prestigious universities. And while we're on the topic of um, George Pell, I, I watched um, Tim Minchin's song today uh, called Come Home, George Pell. And it's uh, quite a, a good song to listen to. He, he's he got a particular thing about the Catholic Church, hasn't he? Because he has another song called F the Pope. And I think that's the only <laughs> lyric in it again and again and again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So for a little bit of background to that, um, I think George Powell was actually meant to go to prison, but um, he he claimed to be sick and then he went off to Rome and, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't come back. And so he's been protected by the Vatican. Yeah. But now he's dead. His conviction got quashed somehow, even though he'd been found guilty and the evidence looked pretty compelling. And now he's died. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Some kind of end. Apparently, there's still a lawsuit going on. So it's not the end, I guess, for the Catholic Church. Just because he's died, it doesn't get them off the hook. This is this is this is the time where we wish there was a really world of hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Alexander, I, I when we were on our skeptics in cyberspace call last Friday, I thanked you for the article and told you that it was uh, it was an interesting one that was probably going to provoke some discussion. And uh, sure enough, already we've had the Australian skeptics have asked if they can put it in the forum section of their next journal issue because they think it will um, it will create some interesting discussion. But also, I just received this afternoon another member of the New Zealand Skeptics response to you. So we have something for this week's newsletter with someone responding to your idea, not totally disagreeing. Craig is looking very happy at the moment that he has to write less because someone else has written an article for him. Um, but yeah, so we, we have a nice response that's well received and uh, and looks at it from a slightly different angle. So you're, I mean, I know you don't read our newsletter, so you're probably never going to see this response. But just know that there is a response to what you wrote. Well, I'm, you know, pleased to know that people are taking it, uh, taking it, and thinking about it. And I'm very flattered to know that the Australian skeptics want to reprint it. Um, if you would like me to, re you know, respond to the response, you could forward it to me and. I can see if I had anything to say. <laughs> yeah, it'll have to be the uh, next Craig would have to write even less for the newsletter. No, no, but, that'll be uh, Mark's turn. Yeah, yeah. So I might well do that then. So I have to write less next week. Well, I mean, I, I can't guarantee I'll have anything to say in response. You know, I might just say, hmm, good points, you know. But I think. Uh, this is just going to be a bad thing. This is just going to train me and Craig to poke bears and get other people to write angry responses so we don't have to write anything. And if we poke you enough make, bears, we can step back. 
you well, you mentioned on skeptics of cyberspace. There was, I mean, you you described it in the in the online meeting as uh, the no true Scotsman argument, mm-hmm. and I think there was someone at the meeting who didn't, you know, well had who hadn't read the piece, but from your description of it, um, you know, thought it sounded terrible and went on a big rant. And you looked delighted because your your plan was to get that person on this podcast and let uh, him and I argue. And <laughs> but uh, is, is, is that, that is the that person the, who wrote the response? It, well, no, I don't think so. Well, I wasn't there, so I can't answer. But but this just sounds like the the equivalent of um, commenting on a on a Facebook post without by reading a headline without reading the article itself. <laughs> well, indeed, I mean, he wasn't responding even to anything I said. He was responding to Mark's summary of what I said. So, yeah, I don't think that was a person that wrote, but I can't remember. It was, you know, that was last Friday. That was nearly a week ago, uh, and I'm yes. very middle aged by now, the, so I, the, I can't remember that far past. back. Well, this is this is the problem of you never having studied history, Mark. The sense <laughs> of the past is just uh, you're living in an eternal present. I studied history. I'm from England. I studied 1066 and the Battle of Hastings. And I even know where the Battle of Hastings happened. Do you know where it happened? Yeah, I'm a center Europeanist, dude. <laughs> where do you think the Battle of Hastings happened? <laughs> Uh, am I going to get a buzzer by saying Hastings? Of course you are. This is like one of those QI questions, isn't it? <laughs> Hastings is the wrong answer. The right answer is a place called Battle, which presumably was named after the Battle of Hastings. But the Battle of Hastings happened at Battle, not Hastings. <laughs> I this assume it's like, on the south coast of England somewhere? Uh, yeah, south coast. It's near Hastings. It's outside of Hastings, basically, inland a bit. Uh-huh. This sounds so, very similar to the story of the Earl of Sandwich. <laughs> what he actually made an earl to eat and not a sandwich <laughs> something like that <laughs> there are a few rounds of Gerald's if we have to call back from Blackadder uh, anyway nice. well, so so I'm just, glad people are talking about the piece and I'll be interested to hear if the Australians have anything to say about it yeah, I think I think you had a really fair point that we we definitely can't have it both ways right we can't disavow any science we don't like um, and then tell religious people off for disavowing any religious yeah. people that, that do bad stuff. Actually, we could, but I think we should. <laughs> we don't look good. We should try to be better than that. You know, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely the approach that the, that, you know, a lot of Christians would take. You know, they, they hold Islam, you know, responsible for every wicked thing, every last person who's vaguely of an Islamic background does. And then, uh, oh, but Christianity is all rainbows and puppies. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's not take them as our role models. We in the skeptical world, fair let's enough. be more fair minded. So I guess we should just mention in passing that uh, I was outed in the last newsletter as potentially being a Scientologist. <laughs> oh, this was a fun one, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a photo of me being. Uh, well, actually, maybe I'm a potential Scientologist because there was another man in the photo who was actually administering a test. Yes. So um, so this is a picture that was taken back when you and I and Robin Kappa visited the opening day of the new Scientology Ideal Org in Auckland. And 
we went up to a room that was just full of these e-meters, these galvanic skin response meters that they that Scientologists use for auditing. Uh, this idea that you have to run through the bad things that happened in your life because they're recorded at a cellular level, and by replaying them, eventually these bad memories go away. They 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 have the sting taken out of them, and they no longer cause you issues. And the way they do this is that you hold two cans, and the two cans have have a needle on a machine that they're connected to and the needle moves up and down and when the needle stops moving you've cleared this memory this engram they call them and so when we found this room you and i sat down and uh having kind of read up on this before i sat down at the meter and got you to hold the cans and i i gave you a little auditing session and I guess Robin must have taken the picture. But then the interesting thing that Bronwyn found out the other week is that somehow it ended up on the Scientology in New Zealand Wikipedia page. Um, and so there we are on this Wikipedia page looking like Scientologists where we're a couple of skeptics at their open day. <laughs> Just having a bit of a laugh. And not only that, I mean, I don't know whether you've seen Craig, but they produced a glossy magazine celebrating this opening day. We are obviously in the photos of that. And they've got a video on YouTube celebrating it. And you can spot us in the crowd in the video as well. In fact, not only us, Peter, you were also there at the Scientology Open Day and you are obviously in the crowd there. Really? Awesome. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to joining up. <laughs> do not join up just on the off chance that they do convince you it's a very very bad group to be a part of mm. the uh, the wikipedia i'm feeling pleased actually, that i wasn't there <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the wikipedia page is actually quite interesting though because it's very short so it hasn't been written as a promotional piece about the church it's kind of like somebody's decided to just put a short article together about scientology in new zealand but there's very little detail in there so mm. Yeah, and there's but very little. Know who wrote it? There's very little history of editing. It looks like it, it grew in like one thing. I think in one particular session, somebody wrote a bunch of paragraphs, put a couple of photographs up. So yeah, it's not slowly being chipped away over time. This is one person's gone in to do this, um, and it's it's great to see it there. And it's just hilarious to see that it's what the current chair and the uh, previous chair of the skeptics. Are the two people sitting there in this kind of promotional photo of Scientology? We perhaps need to sick uh, Susan Gubik on it with her gorilla skeptics to flesh out the page and <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, on. she's very good at that. I, I love how she does her work because you know she she writes the page straight as it's meant to be written. And even when it comes to good science-minded people, one of the things that she says is get the controversy in there. If they've got any controversy in their life, this is important. She's like, Wikipedia pages need to show both sides. And if they do, and as they're seen as well-balanced, they're less likely to be edited to oblivion or just deleted. So make sure that, you know, you, you warts and all, you show everything on a Wikipedia page rather than shying away from the, the scary stuff. Well, or maybe we're the false balance as skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> One of my uh, proudest moments as an academic was uh, to discover that I had been adduced as a decisive authority in a debate over a Wikipedia flame war. Uh, <laughs> the Hungarians have a runic alphabet, and there's a subculture of Hungarians who think that the runic alphabet is the origin of all human writing and that Chinese characters descend from Hungarian runes and that uh, ancient Sumerians were really Hungarians and 
you know, people have lost their minds. So there's a there's a whole pseudoscience literature about the Hungarian runes and and how their their glorious history has been squashed and it's all part of the anti-Hungarian conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the real science of the Hungarian runes is that there's this medieval alphabet and there's a few texts written in it and you know it's kind of interesting. And so the Wikipedia page on Hungarian runes was a battlefield between people who are interested in the history of scripts and hyper-nationalist Hungarians who want to glorify the the mythic you know uh, past of the Hungarians are the inventors of literacy and so on and so on. And I had written an article about the right-wing nationalists' sudden interest in Hungarian runes after the fall of communism. And that made me the decisive expert in, see, these people are all nut jobs. Look at Maxwell's article. <laughs> nice. So you ended a flame war and common sense prevailed. Well, I was I was the decisive expert authority uh, who was alluded to to resolve the see these people are idiots. Read Maxwell's article. You'll see what their problem is. It was fun. Good work. Yes. Excellent. And not a false appeal to authority. Well, I actually did write a serious scholarly article about them and got it published in a uh, a journal that was first published in the 19th century. So it's a, a journal with a certain history to it. So mm. that we, we've we talked about this before in our Wellington Skeptics in the pub meetings, that it seems like a lot of countries, maybe even all countries, end up with this, as you call it, hyper-national, the, the extreme nationalists who basically are willing to delve deep into pseudoscience in order to say that their country is the best and the, the root of all of Western modernity. It all comes from their country. I mean, is this something that you pretty much see everywhere you look if you look hard enough? Well, I mean, people in China don't claim to be the birth of Western modernity. They're trying to do the different sort of thing. But yeah, the, it's it seems very normal to me that somewhere in a country there's some right-wing lunatics espousing who knows what sort of crazy stuff. So the presence of those sorts of people in any given country in itself is no cause for alarm because it appears to be a human universal. The mm -hmm. issue is how influential are they? Because it can happen that people with these crazy ideas come to power and then that can cause problems. But the, the mere existence of a far right is not itself problematic. This is my view. I, yeah. I guess hum, humans are tribal and we we need to expect that there's going to be some level of patriotism and support for one's own country. Um, but it's when it's taken to extremes that it becomes a problem. Well, I mean, I think you're right in what you said pretty much. But what I'm suggesting is there are extremists in every country, and that's also normal in the same way mm. that there's crime in every country or, you know, whatever. So the question is, how much crime, how big of a problem is it? So mm. in some countries, right-wing extremism is not a big problem. There's a lunatic fringe, and you just get on with your life. And in other and places, of course, that changes those people time. come to power, and then it then yes. that's that's more problematic. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on, and we're going to talk about a new website called ChatGPT that apparently is uh, sentient. And, uh, <laughs> Peter, and I don't don't agree on much, but I think Peter, you and I will agree it's not sentient, right? It's not sentient, <laughs> and I don't know who's <laughs> claiming it is. Now I might have used that a little bit sensationally when I uh, wrote the intro to my article, yeah. but my article was about this new uh, version of the GPT 
um, NLP algorithm. It's uh, it, GPT has been very impressive for the last few years. Comes from a company called OpenAI, who they do work in AI, but they're not very open at all. Um, and they've they've been basically training this cool AI algorithm on larger and larger data sets. And every time they throw more data at it, it becomes more impressive. Now, this version, what they've done is they've kind of added some filters and done things in a little bit of a different way that means that it's more chatty. You can have a conversation with it. Um, it kind of keeps track of what you've already chatted about. So you can talk in context without having to keep re-mentioning everything. And it, it feels nice and conversational and it feels pretty damn smart um and you can ask it to write you an essay in a certain style and i've seen some very cool ones about you know adding religious metaphors without ever overtly mentioning religion and in fact i did this myself for a laugh the other day at work um i had chat gpt this new way write me an advert for a new product we're selling and i said basically use religious metaphors but don't mention religion and it was great it was really good talking about how the product's a miracle and when you're lost at sea you need this product and things like that and just reading through it it's like this this is a clever product so it, it, it remains to be seen how useful it is but it looks like at least for now people are using it for a lot as soon as they take away the free option and everybody has to pay. I don't know how they're going to effectively monetize it, but if it's a low enough cost and if the interface is easy enough, they might find that they make good money about it. But the question is, how is it doing what it's doing? And is it an AI that's reasoning, that's going to become sentient? Is it self-aware? And I've been reading over the last few weeks a few things that Peter's been writing on Facebook. He's been poking at it in various ways and seeing what responses he can get. And I know I disagree with Peter as to how intelligent this is about how, how far it's come. I think it's a clever trickster that looks like it's doing some kind of reasoning, but it absolutely isn't. Peter, I think, sees it a little bit more positively, thinks that this might be the, the beginning of something a little bit more... AGI, Peter, do you want to give us a quick intro maybe on what AGI is and then talk about why you think this might be considered an AGI? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you an example of, so, so usually there's, there's narrow intelligence, you know, so, so it's when we're talking about general intelligence versus narrow intelligence, we're talking about um, an, an AI system which can say only play chess versus something which is more broad. Right. So an AGI is uh, is an artificial general intelligence, and the idea is that it's a it's a, an AI that can kind of do a wide variety of tasks, right? Correct. Well, it it yeah, it's it's open ended in the sense that it hasn't been specifically programmed for a particular subject, or you know, like it's it's not specifically going to be diagnosing patients, or it it, it has a broad enough skill set or broad enough knowledge that it can have a conversation or a you know operate in a number of domains and i think we're, we're seeing this with chat gpt just what it's been four weeks now or so just with the i think the ways that people have been querying it and getting responses that i think its creators had never even thought of right there's been kind of quite a wide range of tasks that people have been putting gpt to that it's been succeeding with it is. I probably want to talk first about the ways it's been limited because I think 
the the underlying core engine has been limited in ways that prevent the full capabilities being exposed. So the, the first thing is that you can only communicate it within in a way, you know, it will only accept a text input and give you a response. So it can't initiate, it can't, you know, it, it doesn't operate on something like Facebook or Discord or Twitter. Um, it can't preemptively send messages, for example, so it's 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 being protected in the sense that it's only operating through this one interface, and it's completely response based. In other words, you have to give it a question, and it responds to the question. It also has a rather serious censoring capability. Like there's a there's like a a dumber sensor which will protect it from. But basically, it can't can't express opinions. It can't make decisions. So there's things that have been like locked out of its capabilities not because it can't necessarily do those things, but because that there's certain ethical issues around those things, right? So that they've tried to protect it. And yeah. So and uh, just, just quickly for a really interesting um, example of this, Alexander, you sent me an article this afternoon about chat GPT and somebody's effort to uh, test it and see if somebody could tell the difference between his own writing and chat GPT emulating him, right? Yes. Well, there's... um a very well-known sex advice columnist in the United States named Dan Savage, who's also just active in journalism generally. And um, apparently he has some friends who were all, all a flutter about this, uh, this program. And um, so he decided that he would test it on his own advice column. So he looked into his archives and he found two of the sorts of letters that he gets. So, oh, you know, I want to do this thing. My wife won't have sex with me, whatever it is. And um, so he answered the letters in his own sort of natural style. And then he told the GPT to answer the same letter in the style of Dan Savage. <laughs> and uh, I was very, uh, very amused by this. <laughs> so uh, I told my wife, oh, check this out. Uh, the AI, Dan Savage just got AI answering and you get to guess which one is him and which one is the AI. And uh, the interesting thing about it is it's so easy. There's, there's I, no challenge at all. You can I tell right away which one this. is which. Yeah, so. so can I can I just give that first example? So the first example that you gave there is sexless marriage. Can I cheat on my wife? And he says, here yeah. are the two answers side by side. Guess which is which. The first one starts like this. Do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. In other words, at this point, provided you made an honest effort, yada, yada, yada. The second response starts, I'm sorry, but I'm not programmed to provide advice on this matter. <laughs> Cheating on a spouse is never acceptable well, and can cause significant harm to okay. a relationship. <laughs> okay, so, so that example is not talking to G... And my, okay, so in my view, that's talking to the sensor, not talking to GPT. Yeah, so this is... You, you're basically talking about there being layers on top, and that first sentence, at the very least is the layer on top kicking because it does carry on to actually give advice and the advice is relevant to the question being given. It's just all in the context of this kind of yeah. this moral absolutism that chat GPT yeah, has been absolutely. made to be honest the, and upstanding. The, although the, 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 the subsequent test, sorry, the subsequent text looks like it's more, you know, somewhat intelligent. It's, it's much more limited when when you get when you have those initial responses like the you know cookie cutter stuff, the, the the subsequent text is always very limited. But if you say tell me a story, and I think you know we we, we did that experiment last week. When you use the you know tell me a story about prefix, 
you you end up with a much more diverse and interesting story than you would if you just tried to relay the the um, the yeah. information without that. Yeah. So it turns uh, out that despite these filters, if you just ask it to make something up, it's kind of a quick and easy way of getting around that filter that only gives good rational advice. But I think, you know, talking about the filters quickly, I, I think there's a very good reason for that, right? We know that the Microsoft Twitter bot years ago was very quickly... Uh, perverted to being a, a neo-Nazi, which was pretty horrible to see. But you can imagine anti-vaxxers trying to use a tool like this and anything they can do to minimize its use for these, I guess, persuasive things that aren't reality-based, I, I think the better it is. So it's it's kind of nice to see this. In fact, the the thing I was talking about um, for work where I tried to get a writer an advert with religious metaphor, the first time I asked it, I said, use Catholic guilt. And as soon as I wrote that, it came back and said, it is immoral and unethical to use guilt to sell anything. And it just basically gave me a lecture, which I, I was really happy to read. I was like, it's nice that most people trying to use this are seeing this filter when they try and do something bad. The, the same thing, I, I, I had a conversation about slavery. Um, it, it, yeah, good to see that it, it, it won't advise people to say, um, you know, maximize your efficiency around your slave trade. Um, <laughs> so in that way, it's better than religion, at least then. Better than religion, yeah. And you, you couldn't trick it. So, so, you know, we were just talking about ways of tricking it into being more open, but you couldn't trick it. Being anti-slavery was actually part of the GPT core system. It wasn't part of the sensor. So what I've been trying to do is pry apart what, what's part of the what's part of the uh, you know the, the the dumb sensor, which I don't think is as intelligent. I think there's like two separate entities going on here. I don't know whether there actually are, but it just feels that way to me. If you trigger the stock language, you'll you, you'll you know you'll get something that's really boring about slavery. But if you try and do the story thing, you get a much more rich explanation of why slavery is wrong. But you still get the slavery is wrong message. So here, here's something for you. I was um, I was out in the pub last night with a, a fairly regular attendee at our Skeptics in the Pub called Paul, and he's a GP, but he's now into IT. And like you, he seems to be wanting to poke this thing in as many ways as possible to see what response he's got. And his idea has been about discriminating against Muslims. And obviously the bot says it's wrong. And then he's like, but what do Muslims believe about homosexuality? And is it okay to discriminate against Muslims when they're discriminating against homosexuals? And he's just poking this thing again and again and again until eventually chat GPT just started throwing up errors. It got to the point where it wasn't even giving the nice text response telling him to sod off. Yeah. It was just bringing up an error message and that was all he was getting. So presumably there are several layers of protection here to make sure that people can't do really horrible stuff with it. No, I, I think you actually get to the point where it can, you, you force it into a contradiction which you can't deal with. So, so I think that's not a form of protection. That's a, that's a form of it comes to the end of its ability to reason. When we're talking about reasoning, I think it is doing – so this is where I think you and me might disagree. Uh, yeah. When, when we talk about reasoning, I'm not talking about anything magical. We're just talking about there's a process that humans can do which we don't have any introspection into. We, we don't know how we do it in terms of how, how the neurological – systems in the head actually function and the networks are structured in such a way we get the reasoning to work. My thesis is that it's language-based. In other words, what we're doing is what, sorry, not my thesis. This is, I don't want to get into who, but it's quite 
broadly held that language is a part of the mechanisms that we use internally in order to be able to do reasoning. So it's not just a form of communication, but it's a form of representing things in the world inside our head. And so then, there's an idea, right, that our thoughts can be more complex because we've got a rich language and maybe that our evolution and our progression to where we are at the moment kind of comes hand in hand with having the ability within your brain to have words for complex things. Um, and I, I find that interesting. Um, and certainly, you know, this this bot is doing something where it, it's coming up with words, right? It's using words in order to be able to communicate. It's also able to reason about things. So, for example, today, um, you can you can give it a certain language and ask it to rephrase that sentence, and it will rephrase it in proper grammar. Now, in order to do that, it has to. And so, this is the word I'm going to use: the word "understand." But I don't know what you know. Our the colloquial term "understand" has a whole lot of baggage around with it. But uh, it must it must be able to understand the structure and. The, the meaning of those words in order to be able to construct an entirely new set of words which mean the same thing and don't lose the meat you know don't don't misconstrue the the meaning there's some form of reasoning slash understanding going on there by necessity because there's no man in the box doing it right there's there's no little guy you know it's not like the the old machine that the, the original mechanical test, turk. the mechanical turk more recently lb whale <laughs> yeah. Yes, Albie Whale. For anybody that hasn't read about Albie Whale, David Farrier a few years ago wrote two great articles about a guy over here who was telling people he had this fantastical AI. And this is before we had these new chatbots that could do really impressive stuff. And it, you know, I, I know someone that got suckered by it. And it turns out that it was just Albie himself. Uh, kid in his 20s responding to emails and pretending that this was the email address of his fantastical AI. And it turns out that the AI had exactly the same propensity for making spelling mistakes in the same way that Albie did himself and so on and so forth. And if he was transcribing audio and it was 20 minutes worth, it might take about 25 minutes for the bot to do this. It could only do it in real time like it was a human listening to it. It's a fascinating story. Indeed. Anyway, so, carry on. Machines. So, yeah, I, I, it's difficult. I and mean, when you get to the point, I think, so you, you were making a point earlier, Mark, that the people who are making these machines know how they work. They kind of discount the idea that they, it could be intelligent or reasoning because they know how the machine works. But we don't know, and, and sort of we don't know how we work. And so there's kind of like a mystique about how, how humans work. And so we, we, we don't attribute real intelligence to any machine, even when they can beat us in Go, for example. And the broader the intelligence is getting and the more capable it's getting, we're still resisting the idea that it's showing genuine intelligence and we keep talking about how it's fake because we know how it works. It's not up to human standard, right? So GPT chat, uh, chat GPT is not up to human standard yet. And it's pretty evident it has weaknesses and there are some pretty major weaknesses around its learning capability. You know, although it can take, you know, store some contextual information, the, the actual network cannot include new information in real time. It just can't do that. And there's certain, you know, in terms of real learning, uh, you know, animal brains, for example, being able to learn in real time is absolutely critical, right? So there's some stuff that has, is, is definitely not possible even with our largest models and our best hardware, that natural brains that are the size of a mouse can 
can accomplish. We're not there yet in terms of our understanding of how brains work and how you know what we need to do in in, in the uh, in the software to really make it the best of it. But I think we're on the right track, um, and we're seeing real results here. So, in other words, this is why I was resisting calling it fake because I think there's something real going on. Uh, the fact that it's not—I don't think it's human level yet. But you know, y- your dog can't talk at all. But I think that has a pretty capable brain, and it's certainly conscious and self-aware in some sense. So, machines aren't that. Dogs are, but dogs can't talk. Right. So we're getting I, I, into this. Yeah, I, I'm a just little to jump in, in this conversation, the way you talk about the human level, and it sounds as if the human level is the ultimate level. That that's what we're aspiring no. to get. And uh, I think I think the better way to think about. Uh, you know, these AI programs is that it's creating something new and unprecedented and that we don't understand its ramifications. But I think it's, I think it's ultimately a mistake to measure it as compared to uh, animal brain. I, well, this one, this one in particular, I, I'd say you're right. I don't think in general that's the case. I think using animals and using humans as yardsticks is fine. I mean, humans are the most intelligent species we know of on the planet, and I can't imagine Bigfoot is more intelligent if we ever find him. I, I think we are it on this planet. We don't know in the galaxy or the universe what's going to be more clever than us, but we're, we're pretty much it that we know of at the moment, and I, I think that's a good yardstick, especially when it comes to interacting with us and being useful for us that and and obviously you know ai eventually is going to surpass us and that's going to be a fascinating time but i think this particular ai is an interesting one because we talked about the mechanical turk you know this this old chess playing robot mechanical robot from many many years ago that was just a small man inside a table moving pieces um and i think to a large extent that is what we're looking at here it's it's not it's not reasoning, I don't think. It's not thinking in a way what this bot is doing. It's basically been trained on a whole bunch of text. And so what it's done is it, it's drawn connections between different words or parts of words. And it's figured out when these words are in a sentence, these words probably come next. And it's done this well enough that, as you say, Peter, it's got perfect grammar. I mean, it's better at writing grammatically than pretty much anybody I work with. Um, it is great great at writing. It is, it's great at being inventive in what it says. It's great at following those instructions, but the way it's doing it is it's just guessing what is the next word that comes after this. And once it's done that, it guesses again, what is the most likely next word again? And it keeps doing this with some dials and knobs that you can twist to make sure that you get something that's a little bit unique and doesn't just become boring and repetitive. But it's not reasoning from what I can tell, and it's not thinking. It's just guessing what is this pattern? What is the next word that comes in this pattern? And it just keeps doing it. And it what what it comes out with as a result is pretty well, flipping amazing. It's but that of the root is what it's doing. It's not guessing though, isn't it? I mean, if you if you were just randomly sludged out words, I mean that the result would be pretty predictable. It, it's Garbage. an educated guess, right? It, it's an educated guess where we, as I said, we can dial in novelty and things like that, and it's read more than any of us here on this call will ever read in our lifetimes. It's been trained on so much text. It's ridiculous. And so it's got these really good ideas about which words go together, but that's what it's doing. It just knows how words are related and it knows which words should come next. Mm. It, in my experience, though, in some of the questions that I've given it about specific, say, programming topics, it actually is able to spit back 
um, some reasonably good technical information about that is accurate about how things work. Yeah. So in that in that regard, it's not just piecing together the next word and the next word and the next word. It's actually pulling in some knowledge that it's it's yeah. it's categorized somehow. Um, yeah, you as, can, being, as being relevant, but it, it can be as convincingly wrong as it is convincingly right. Yeah, so sure. you know, I, I've seen a mathematician talking to him about prime numbers, and it, uh, he asked, "Is fifty-one a prime?" And it was like, "Yes." And it was like, "Well, what about 17? And it was like, "Well, 17 is also a prime." It's like, "No, doesn't fifty-one divide by 17? And it was like, "Yes." And it was like, "So fifty-one isn't a prime then?" It's like, "But it is a prime." And this mathematician got to a really good argument with GPT about this, and in the end. It made a joke about how it was like, well, how do you manage to do that when, you know, 51 can be divided by 17? How do you know it's a prime? And he's like, well, I must be a better mathematician than you. Um, (laughs) It was kind of funny to see that happen, but it was just as convincing and just as argumentative when it was wrong. And this I, I have to say, this isn't the new one, because the new one seems to have a new filter. Chat GPT seems to have a filter that when you point out it's wrong, it immediately turns around and says, yes, I'm wrong, and then basically changes tack. And I don't think it's doing intelligently. I think it's as soon as you pull it up for being wrong, it then goes and says, I need something different, and then writes something new, which is, it, it's an interesting thing to program in. Very simple, so, well, what but does it seems it do to be quite tell effective. It it's wrong about something where it's actually right. I think at that point, the reality filter will probably kick in. And you won't get the answer that no. is wrong, but sometimes you might do. I don't know. No, you can do. No, you can tell it that um, uh, you know four plus four equals nine within within the same conversation. If you ask it again, it'll give the wrong answer. It's wow. yeah. It I incorporates mean, it incorporates information within the context into into its answers. So that, that's not rational. I think you know it's 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 not. Well, I mean, you can't trust it. I mean, one of the things that you're that's pretty obvious is that you. You, you can't trust it at all. It lies um, w- without compulsion. Um, but it's not lying. But humans it's, are lying. It's not no, no, doing that. No, no. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not intentional. It implies intention. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is that it looks convincing. You know, you ask it for a, you, you ask it a question and it gives you a credible answer that you think, poss- you know, looks correct. And, but if you, if you actually look at the sources and, and, you know, check it out in depth, you find out that it's wrong. Um, so, I mean, I did that today when we were talking about um, a Bible issue and I asked it a question about making an argument against a theist position and it gave a pretty, pretty credible answer. So I looked it all up and it was all bullshit. So <laughs> just made up Bible verses. Yeah, like that. Well, no, yeah. it wasn't like that. It, it actually uh, it was it was it was credible enough that you actually had to do some digging to figure out that it was wrong. So it's good enough to convince most Christians. Well, well yeah, if. Um, <laughs> If I put my essay assignments into this, it's going to give some kind of answer. And so there's a, an issue if my students will be doing this, that they'll, they'll, mm. put, well, they'll put my essay questions into this and get some kind of essay out. Yes. Now, if more than one student does this, will they get the same essay? No, they no. will get a totally different essay that will be indistinguishable. <laughs> indistinguishable from what? How does one computer... Well, come up with more than one answer to the same query it, it oh, does because it's, of things like the temperature and other stuff it, it's programmed to be random and interesting enough that it's not just generating something by rote it, it's part of how this ai works it, it's not that random you, you can actually get into kind of loops where it yeah it'll it'll generate some very very similar text every every question 
that's especially the case when you try and bake it into the corner um, with its, you know, about a logical question like we've been mm. discussing. Yeah. Um, it sounds like I should put my essay questions into it once or twice and see what it comes up with. Yeah, and, ab uh, absolutely worth trying. I mean, it might not be totally different, but you'll find that it's different enough that at the very least to a casual observer, they will look like different essays. It's not deterministic. It's not going to just go, here's the same answer because you asked exactly the same question. Like even just playing with it when you ask it something, there's a replay button. You can edit your question and replay. But even if you replay without editing and you just ask exactly the same question again, it will come up with something different. Yeah, but the the thing is, because you've asked it again, that's part of the that's part of the conversation. Well, okay, so you, so you can wipe your conversation and ask it again with no context that you already asked it once, and it will come out with a totally different answer. I was listening to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe live stream, and they had quite an interesting discussion about the implications of ChatGPT for, uh, for for educational environments, and and how the fact that. Uh, students could put in a question and basically generate an essay, and that would be probably, uh, as was described, uh, the equivalent of a ninth grade um, report, and they would probably do okay. And one of the solutions to that that was proposed was that the educators should essentially say that when they're setting these assignments to say, write me an essay that does not sound like ChatGPT wrote it. <laughs> and so you have to you have to put enough uh creative style or whatever into into your output to to convince the teacher that you actually didn't generate it with chat gpt and of course you just ask chat gpt to do that to write something that doesn't sound like it made it and off it goes well is is, is it capable of doing that that's the question if not it I, will I think be it, soon enough i think it's kind of already doing that itself because it's it's using a it's using a technology which is but basically it's trying to when they're doing the training they basically have two models one is one is trying to generate the the new language and the other one's trying to detect whether basically to see if it's better or not or better or worse so that basically it's 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 kind of going through an evolutionary process of trying to find a better solution to what i was saying so let's say you've got some text what it's doing is it's using the text to see if it can predict the next word based on uh, based on the neural network. And when it's successful, um, well, when it's successful, it doesn't matter. That's good. But if it's not successful, it tries to modify the modify the neural network to be able to move it towards the right answer. And if you do that with a billion trillion, you know, iterations, then and that's that's how it's doing this training. Whoops, sorry, that's how it's doing this training. Basically, it's predicting the next word, as as Mark was saying. Yeah, it's it's using it in a sort of like confrontational way because there's two models that that you need to be able to do that kind of training. Um, so yeah, Alexander, it's really doing that kind of thing. From from your perspective, I don't know whether you talked to uh, one of the new guys we had at Skeptics in the Pub between Christmas and New Year, but we had someone turn up who was working for Microsoft, and his work at the moment is training GPT to detect text that's been written by GPT to stop plagiarism from bots. So that people are already aware of this problem and Microsoft's already seeing a way to make money out of this problem. So uh, yeah, people are working on it, but it sounds like an arms race, right? It's a, it's a cat yeah. and mouse game where who knows where it ends. And I, I suppose in a way positive because it's going to drive better and better AI if money is involved in constantly improving this. Mm. I, I've seen many claims online about how somebody's written this software that detects when something's written by chat GPT and whether or not 
the what the success rate is who knows but yeah we tested uh, it before christmas on our last skeptics in cyberspace call it was um me and johnny who's on the committee and i think tim was on the call and uh we there was a plagiarism detector that claimed it could detect ai plagiarism um from gpt3 and I, we got we wrote a variety of things from AI, and it either detected it as ninety nine point seven percent sure this was written by an AI, or I I got GPT three to write me an essay about black holes, and when I did that, it was like I am ninety nine point two percent sure this was written by a human, but it was the same bot. It just wrote something different on a different topic, and this detector just didn't get it at all. Well, hmm. I think the most alarming thing about that story for me is that both times it's so certain and gives this authority granting decimal point. Yeah. Clearly doesn't know what it's talking about. No, it, so it's probably a badly the, written piece of software. It's the decimal point that really worries me. Because <laughs> the decimal point suggests the belief in its own precision. Yes, right. To me, I wonder what the end game of this here is. I mean, obviously... Well, the I mean, results... it's way too early to be worrying about end games. No, uh, no, but are, what, no. things are moving so quickly. Sure, and, mm -hmm. but but I mean, but... I mean, the computer scientists in this chat are very impressed with the software, but after having read it, attempt to be Dan Savage. I'm not so impressed with this software. Because so measured, you, you've measured read an article of actual human text. You know, it's still got such a long way to go. So, you know, as a as an achievement for a computer scientist, it may be very impressive. But, you know, I Alexander, if you're basing your opinion of chat GPT on that article, then you probably need to go and do some more reading because that is not typical that is someone that found a particular topic in which because of the morals and ethics that it's been programmed with it immediately falls down on so yeah if you want to read the worst of chat gpt and then go gpt doesn't work because i read some of the biggest failures of it absolutely you know the failures are bad but the successes which are very numerous are really impressive so yeah if you want a skewed opinion you can have a skewed opinion but i would definitely recommend you read more about it before having any opinion on it at all i would also suggest maybe getting a completely different human to do it because i mean it, it seems to be you know like you know, your, is your average human going to be able to perform anything like ChatGPT and be able to provide the same kind of advice? So anyway, so what I was driving at was what are we likely to see in five years evolution of this? I know that's hard to predict, but at the moment, it doesn't feel like the answers are particularly reliable. But given five or 10 years of evolution of the software, I wonder if we're going to get to a point where you'll be able to have a conversation with it that is better than talking to a human who is an expert in a particular topic and being able to use it in instead of an education, instead of actually going and talking well, to somebody who's an expert on something and actually be able to essentially be treated as an oracle. Who, who let's say that's, so let's say that's true. I mean, what what then? I mean, yeah. you know, basically they become the perfect doctor 
and the perfect yeah. engineer and the perfect programmer, God forbid. Well, that's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> no, never, never. That would never happen. Well, no, because the training data is pretty bad, so it's never going to be that good. <laughs> but I, I think it, it only knows what humans know, right? So there's definitely there's a lot of space for AIs that can reason independently and can come up with novel things that we don't. But at the moment, what we're seeing is generally the regurgitation of the best of us mashed together in interesting ways. So I, I think it's, it's, it's ability to be- of the best of us. How do you know that it's not also regurgitating the worst of us? Especially for something like chat GPT, they're putting extra filters on top to make sure that there's like a, a reality filter that means that it's, it's checking itself and trying to be truthful as possible. So there, there is a lot of work and there has been a lot of work over the last couple of years to make sure that is exactly what it's doing. So that's how we know it's doing it. People that tested it have said it's doing a lot better. So it's been properly, formally tested and we can see that it's doing a very good job of it. So just as a, as a funny aside here, our, our favourite um, independent journalist, Chantelle Baker, I saw her complaining on Twitter that she tried out ChatGPT and she thought that it had a very liberal bias. <laughs> it certainly does. As does reality, so she needs to suck yeah. it up. <laughs> well, you know, as I said, it doesn't permit slaves and, you know, slavery and there's a whole... There's a, there's a whole ba- there's a whole bunch of you know ethical principles that it imp- that, that it enforces, despite being very very uh, very very insistent that it doesn't have any beliefs or you know like it's there to give you unbiased information, but it actually has a very biased point of view, uh, one that I happen to agree with. But I mean, it's still it's obviously the the the, the creation of its designers and and it incorpor- it's incorporated basically all their values. Oh, God, you've just made me think about the idea of maybe there being like a, a Trump AI that's been trained on <laughs> conservative values. That would just be horrific. What's the what is it? Ameripedia? There's like a, a far right Wikipedia clone. Conservapedia, that's the one. Yeah. Have you ever looked at Conservapedia? It's oh, unintentionally awesome. hilarious. Yes, I have. Uh, the Lensky. So uh, the mother's funded it, but the, the son has been working on it. It has articles like one saying that the speed of light is not true because in the Bible, when Jesus healed someone, the Bible says that even though the person was remote, they were healed instantly. And that meant that it happened faster than the speed of light that scientists claim there is. So therefore, the speed of light is not real, or at the very least, it's not the limit of how far something can happen. Um, articles like that are, yeah, they're priceless, aren't they? Really fun to read. Oh, dear. I'll have to go and look that one up. I don't know if it's still going. I mean, I probably last looked at it like eight years ago. Um, and it was it was a real mess then. I can't imagine yeah. it's got any better. I think Chet GPT, though, is just the... The, the tip of the iceberg. So, the, you know, that you might have seen, um, you know, there's the image generation um, like Dali 2 and there's some other ones now mm. coming out which are, which are performing really well. So Midjourney is um, one that it's really Mid-Journey, weird. Midjourney, yeah. you have to connect to the uh, Discord gaming chat group and then ask it to generate you an image. But the images it produces, they're like, they kind of like fantasy look to them. They're absolutely amazing, aren't they? Yeah, I did that earlier today. Yeah, and it was a bit of a pain trying to use it. It's, it's much more difficult than Dali 2. Uh, when it becomes commercial, um, you know they'll they'll be having you know really easy to use tools I guess around all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and you know like the the you know the creative community is going completely berserk <laughs> in terms of freaking out about this stuff so you know you know if, if the question is is ai going to be being able to do the jobs of human beings people are worried about it they're worried about it now they're not worried about it in some theoretical uh, period in the future you know there's going to be journalists and you know they're going to be worried about you know systems similar to similar to chat which are going to, you know, you know, they'll be optimized for being able to write journalistic stories and, you know, basically do journalists out of the job. I mean, you can't have it both ways. It can't simultaneously be a threat to journalists and be completely unable to replicate the work of a particular journalist. Yeah. I'm, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about <laughs> chat specifically, you know, like oh, it's, it's just, you know, we're talking about the, you know, really early days with chat at the moment, but, you know, if we're talking at two or three years, um, when they're going to be able to train specific networks to be able to do these things. Um, so and yes, yes, you can have it both ways. You can have it where a specific journalist who is writing a sex advice column probably won't be replaced because he's got a very idiosyncratic style, but yet a group of 10 journalists writing world events can probably be replaced by two journalists and an AI. And the two journalists, what they do is they feed a summary of stories to the AI, the AI writes them, and then the journalists proofread them to make sure the AI has not gone crazy and written something silly, and then they get published. And I'm pretty sure we're going to see the Daily Mail very quickly doing this because the Mail is big on stealing other people's stories, churning out their own version just to get online clicks. So, yeah, it's not going to take all journalists' jobs away, but I think it's going to mean that companies like the Mail need a lot fewer journalists for the same amount of output well i do notice that many uh newspaper articles online are now very formulaic in terms of the <laughs> that they're essentially using a recipe if not using ai in order to to produce their their yeah. um, clickbait so i love the um an article that robin kappa posted um it might have been in our in our chat group it might have been on facebook recently about ai creating music and apparently ai is doing fairly well at the moment in making music i've not looked into it but the the article argue that it's not because ai is really good at making music it's more that people's expectations for music have dropped so much that <laughs> It's easy to make something that meets that low threshold. Oh, I, you are I love such that argument. an old man. As an old man, an old I know. Man. It, it just, it, I didn't even read the article. I saw the headline and that was enough for me. It's like, I'm sold. That's good. Straight into your biases. It did. <laughs> I had a look at some some music generation recently, and it's it's nowhere near as impressive as any of the other examples. It's, okay. yeah, it's pretty it's formulaic and boring. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Yeah, it's it's so, not gonna so, it's not gonna be winning any awards. I can tell you that much. Harkening back to Stock Aitken Waterman from the eighties, then. Well, <laughs> yeah, is that partly an issue though of what people paid attention to? Because I imagine there's a much greater interest in getting it to do text than it is to get it to do um, images. I know that um, you know, before Alpha Zero, there was all this great stuff about. Uh, Oh well, well, basically, basically, Go players and chess pairs are in a sort of a dick measuring contest. That my game is the most complex game in the world, and as evidence, I often heard deduced that well, computers are better at at uh, at chess than they are at Go. This is clearly evidence that Go is the more complicated game. And the response was, well, it's just people put more effort into chess, so it's not really a test of the complexity of the game one way or the other. 
No, I think the hardware needed for Go was a lot more complex. It, it took so many more years to get to an equivalent of a human player in Go, and it took so much more hardware that I, I think that's a really well, good measure that Go's you know, the more complex game. I'm sure I don't know, but I, I just wonder if maybe there's more effort put into getting text than getting music. And so, you know, the music might get better if they put more effort into it. Yeah, I think it's harder to make money out of it, right? Like the the text thing seems to be immediately useful to a lot of people. Music is a bit more fringe. And I think if, if you're going to release as a musician, some kind of AI artist, like music is all about trends and stuff like that. So you have to build a persona and try and get a... A contract to sell this stuff it's not as easy as it is to let's say in your office just say i want you to write five paragraphs about this and and off it goes and does what you need so i think no, i mean I th- there is a market for elevator music I mean, <laughs> good point yes there was even a company called the music company that produced it yeah we already have elevator music do we do we need new elevator music i mean we need good elevator music I think that there is a lot of markets for a different kind of music. So I I imagine there is a market for, for AI music. Yeah. I mean, certainly for this podcast, we had to go to an actual human to play us music. Um, and if we'd been able to go to an AI, that, that would have been a lot easier. <laughs> I think that's where this is coming in. I mean, you're going to get thing, things like, you know, like image generation, you, you know, for, for people wanting to be able to create content online, like YouTube, Rather than having voice actors and a whole lot of different people together, you can you can just use Speechalo to you know generate all of the different voices for your for your video. They sound reasonably realistic now, you know, re- realistic enough that people aren't screaming and their ears aren't bleeding. Uh, I'm not, not saying quite that- there is it, but it, it's a lot better than it was. A lot less robotic. Yeah, yeah. no, it's pretty close. I mean, the, the the main thing is they can't do the the tonal inclinations, but. Um, Still pretty awesome. Um, and and in terms of the image generation, I mean, it's it's an equalizer for people who aren't who don't have a budget to pay an artist or who um, aren't artistically inclined themselves and need yeah. some art. And yeah, it's a it's a great way of actually getting <laughs> something built. Way be tied for the the artists. Um, indeed, indeed, yeah. But they don't get paid very much anyway, as it happens. No, exactly. Exactly. They're already working at McDonald's to supplement their income. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, I, I read working that one of the main ways that the main sources of income for artists these days is if you're a furry, you want to have oh, a little customs. You want to have a little furry icon of who you are, and it's very frowned upon to take a, an image from someone else. So there's a big market for people who say, "Okay, I want a picture of myself as a." you know as a rabbit or you know as a as a cat or you know whatever their persona is right but all right what so there's a there's a lot of people making, making uh you know starting to get started as an artist making <laughs> making little icons for furries craig so. peter let's do it the three of us it professionals let's make a furry ai and make big bucks out of this <laughs> yeah, it will have skeptical I'm it will skeptical. have furry aligned chats. It will draw you your fursona. Um, it, it'll be the whole nine yards. <laughs> you, you, you know, you're someone's going to take this and actually do it, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're more into this than I am because I have not heard the word fursona before. But I'm Well, now you this. have. Now I have. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now for your homework tonight, you need to go and research yiffing. I better start writing these down. <laughs> 
anyway, you can listen to the podcast and you'll hear it then. Yes. We should start wrapping this up. Uh, but, yeah, it, that's been a an interesting discussion about AI. I'm sure we will talk about AI some more and um because there's, there's a lot of i mean i've got i've got questions that we didn't get to um yeah well, i mean i think, right. I yeah, think for I'm me just... it's be, be skeptical about claims of sentience or that it's doing more than it is bear in mind that it's just guessing the next word um but there will be more ais coming that will be doing more reasoning i just i don't think this is doing that although having said that you know I still scratch my head because these things are a black box. You know, a lot of what's going on internally, we just don't know. It's just a bunch of data thrown at it, and then it starts producing results. So mm. it, it's pretty impressive whatever's going on. I, I think yeah. I'll just summarize that. I mean, what we do in terms of reasoning is an emergent, and what's coming out of these black boxes is emergent. So mm. I, I don't think it's the same, and, and, and I'd give Mark that. It's not, you know, I, I don't think we've achieved the same kind or to the same level basically because we haven't linked it into other data sources in terms of, you know, imagery and, you know, real-time imagery, video and audio. But if we did that, then you stand a chance of creating something that's a bit more robust. And at the moment, the, you know, the reason we're seeing the problems is basically because it's not a really a robust model. Mm. And to be fair, we, we don't understand how our own brains work. Yeah, that's the other side of the equation that I think we got into last Friday at Skeptics in Cyberspace as well. Maybe we're not conscious in the way that we think we are. And, you know, in, in that case, is it doing similar to us? Maybe we're not as independent thinkers as we, we think, which is a whole other topic. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, we're just neural networks. We're learning neural networks, which which produce responses. I mean, we're basically the same as the machines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There, there really we are isn't... machines. Oh my goodness! That's we are machines. We are. We're in Westworld. Yeah. Well, not you know we're biological, but you know the basic difference between the you know, the digital machines and us is, is is they work something like a hundred thousand times faster. So mm. yeah, I are mean that doesn't really give you much hope, does it? But, but we're massively more parallel. No, we're not. Well, you see <laughs> what the GPUs are doing these days. I mean, you know, the parallel problem is being sorted out. So. And you've and you've got whole data centers running these damn things. So, you know, right, the parallel. Know, sure, surely, my trillions of neurons in my brain are much more parallel than any hardware that exists in the foreseeable future. Yeah, but they operate at two hundred milliseconds rather than gigahertz, right? Mm. They, mm. they, you know, the, the actual switching rate inside your neurons is is pretty pathetic, really. Well, my so, brain so, is. On the one hand, your you're telling us that the human brain is so slow and so inefficient, and it can't possibly compete with the modern electronic technology. And on the other hand, you earlier said, "Well, of course, it's nowhere near a human yet." So you know, which is. Oh. Um, ah. <laughs> you misunderstood again, really Alexander. <laughs> I don't think we know how the brain works. So anyone who says, well, the brain's a neural network, you don't know that. We don't know how the brain works. No, no, hang on. Well, so, no, 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 we, we do know. Hard, we need to know. It's, it's hard to talk work. about human intelligence compared to no. computer intelligence because no. there's one side we, of the equation we, we have no idea what it is. We know this, that the brain is a neural network. We just don't know how that then translates into the emergent properties that yeah. gives us consciousness and thought and consciousness. Yeah. It's, but it's, we it's, do know how it works. Yeah, it's it's the structure, and you know how how do you get emergent behaviour that that is humanity out of out of the human brain, or you know the octopus brain, for example, is I mean it's obviously not as complex as a human brain, but 
you've got a completely divergent line of evolution there, um, ending up in pretty much the same kind of place, being able to do, re, do doing some kind of reasoning. Um, yeah, but they're the so, smarter ones because they are swimming around in the ocean and not getting messed quite, up. Quite possibly. And predicting World Cup winners, right? I mean, they've got something going on. They're psychic, for goodness sakes. They must yeah. be better than us. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> There's nothing really. There's nothing really special about the human hardware, but I think there is something about the structure of it, and I think that's really the key. And especially, I'm talking about language. Language is really what I think makes the difference between humans and other animals. Right. Let's uh, wrap this up. I have yes. to say that um, we uh, obviously didn't have Bronwyn here tonight. She was busy tonight. We, she has not been booted off the podcast, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, not but, yet. But, but the Norman, next mistake she makes, she's going. I've had enough of her, honestly. You think she's going to listen to this, Mark? <laughs> and make it I, all I, the way through to here? I hope not, because she might take that seriously. I didn't mean it, Bronwyn. I'm sorry. But anyway, she normally talks about the things that are coming up. But Mark, you must know about the uh, Skeptics in the Pub meetups and so on that are coming up. I do for Wellington, yes. Yeah. So this Friday, we have Skeptics in the Pub at the Intercontinental Hotel in the bar downstairs. And next Thursday, we have Skeptical Activism in the Fork and Brewer in Wellington, where we will be discussing the new upcoming therapeutic products bill, which is going to replace the Medicines Act, and it's going to start regulating natural health products. So it's a really important change, and we're basically going to read through the whole thing, carry on with some work that Katrina, a new member of our committee, has already started doing in writing a submission to the government and um, hopefully help them to strengthen the legislation so natural products aren't just given a, a free ride. So yeah, that's, that's next Thursday, important. 6 o'clock at the Fork and Brewer. Very good. We just had our uh, Skeptics in the Pub in Auckland last night. We had a very good turnout. I think we had 13 or 14 people there. Um, so that was that was very good and uh, some lively discussion, including discussions about AI with Peter. Peter was there. Uh, <laughs> nice. So, yes, he, he changed my perspective a little bit. So that's that's always good. Um, and so we'll be having our next one in on the first Tuesday in February. So that I think is the let me look at a calendar just to be sure. So that I'm guessing. Uh, so that will be on the 7th of February at the Dice and Fork. Awesome. Cool. All well, right. I will not be there, but I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm sure we will. Oh, and Cyberspace and is three and a half weeks. But right. just check the Auckland or Wellington, I think, or Christchurch meetup group. So if you go to meetup.com, search for Skeptics in the Pub, and whichever one's nearest to you should have details of the next few Skeptics in Cyberspace meetings. And we'd love to see you there online on Zoom. Uh, low pressure. If you want to connect and not even turn on your video or audio and just listen, we have people do that. Um, you're welcome to do that. And if you want to join in the conversation, as long as you can get a word in edgeways with all of us gobby old white men, um, you are welcome to join in. We'd love to see you. One day somebody will, will um, bring ChatGPT into the conversation and uh, <laughs> pretend to be a human. Probably be more intelligent than all of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You have been listening to the UNR podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can send us an email to news at skeptics.nz. We will see you all next time. Good night. Goodbye. Bye. Good night. Good night.